Thank you for those who are joining us today. This is the FinTech Cafe. My name is Ambika Sharma. And generally, you also have Monisha here, who's my co-host. Today, she was unable to join. She had a family obligation. So we asked Vabhav, who also has a show uh, on the similar topic, finance or fintech, on Clubhouse, if he could join. And he very graciously has agreed to join. So Vabhav, welcome as our co-host today. Thank you. Thank you. Honors mine. Well, thank you for joining. Uh, this is the 34th episode of the FinTech Cafe. We started about eight months ago, and uh, we've been doing this show every week on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Today we're hosted, or we are hosting, the founder and CEO, Stephanie Kirkpatrick. I think how much I've learned about her, I would say she's a human dynamo. So, Stephanie, I'm very excited to have you on the show. I think it's going to be a very inspirational call. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for including me. Certainly. So with that, let's kick it off. Vap up over to you if you want to give us your intro, and then we'll go to Stephanie. Sure. So I'm chief of staff of a company called Avid. We are building asset-backed credit card, and we've been live for almost one and a half years now with uh, home equity-backed credit. But I'm a regular fintech nerd. I have been at, I've built a couple of new banks, a couple of broker dealers, an exchange. So I'm 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 hardcore nerding out talking to Stephanie again because I would I'm 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 excited to see what what's happened in the last six six months or eight months we've spoken Stephanie. Well we've been busy that's for sure. <laughs> so lots to talk about. Perfect. Well do you guys so want Stephanie... me to give a little background? Yes. Perfect. So I'm so excited to join today. Uh, I know we're gonna dive into what does Orem do and all the details. I'll save that for the actual discussion, but I found my way into by way of being a certified financial planner, which is kind of an unusual journey, and uh, spent a bit of time at a company called LearnVest based in New York. So about uh, 10 years building a really incredible fintech financial planning business that we sold to Northwestern Mutual a few years back. And I've always felt that there was like an unsolved problem about how people manage their finances, which is what ultimately led me to working on what we're doing at Orem. So I can't wait to tell you all the details. Disclaimer on my side is that I'm a mom and it's eight o'clock Eastern. And of course the kids don't want to go to bed and probably want to come check in on what I'm doing. So, well, you can't see them. If there's interns uh, on audio in the background, please, my apologies in advance. No worries. Well, thank you for taking this call so late on your time. Stephanie, it's, it's like, this is one of the blessings of, of pandemic, honestly. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> all of these things absolutely. are normalized. So you never have to apologize for it. And especially for, for working parents, it's, it, and by the way, most of it is actually moms taking the burden. So it's awesome, right? Like you can have kids running around, your dog's barking, all of that. <laughs> and I think it's awesome that the kids get to know like what I actually do for a living. So I think it's been great in all regards. I do agree there's some pretty good outcomes. And setting aside the noise and distraction, it's, it's truly incredible to have been given a chance to build a company. And we'll talk about it today. Orem is actually fully remote. Um, and about 40% of the company is also parents, many of them with very young kids like me. So it does put you in a place where you feel like you're kind of all in it together, for sure. Great. So Stephanie, foremost, what does Aura mean? Oh, gosh, the, the journey to name a company is one that is so circuitous and ultimately rife with lots of mistakes. But what we ultimately landed on is a word that is the Latin root for gold. And the reason we like that name uh, and the reason it stands out so significantly for us is because gold was originally used to stabilize uh, the U.S. financial system. And in our eyes, we are rebuilding that financial system brick by brick, or in this case, API by API. And it's just really powerful as we step back and think about what can we unlock in the future of financial services and what can we restabilize by building a better foundation. So that's the background on the name. And actually, as I sit here in my home office, Two Christmases back, my husband got me a neon sign. So I'm in the, in the glow of a, a pink or a, a sign that I wish you guys could all see because it's pretty cool. Post it on Twitter. Oh, gosh, don't get me started on Twitter, guys. I wish I was uh, young enough, cool enough, enough into fintech to be in the know about Twitter. But I will, I will definitely get a picture out there, I promise. <laughs> So Stephanie, you are a certified financial planner. You worked at LearnVest, which uh, eventually got sold to North Northwestern Mutual. And now you're helping fix the financial infrastructure of the United States, which is an incredible background. So tell us more about your professional journey and how you decided to solve the problem statement of payment rails. 
You know what I would say here, and I would say this to, to anyone who's thinking about solving hard things in their lives is like what you set out to do and how you do it is always a derivative of caring and, and being passionate about something. And for me, the passion that I've always carried as a certified financial planner is how do I help other people do more with what they have? And it's really not for me about helping the wealthy get wealthier. It's helping the everyday American, which is what brought me to learn best. And for 99% of America, we're trying to solve for very hard things. You know, should I pay off credit cards faster or should I work on a medical bill or my student loans? And it really boils down to being able to have very great sort of mathematical guidance on how to make those decisions, a really good financial planning system. So for a number of years, that was my focus. And when I was working on that problem, we were building intellectual property and patented software. And I had the, had the opportunity to build much of the software that we ended up patenting. What we saw is that it became so powerful to give people advice. And the missing link wasn't knowing what to do. It was actually getting it done. And when Northwestern Mutual bought LearnVest, we went from being a small startup, you know, growing rapidly, serving hundreds of thousands of customers to being in the thick of a business that was serving six and a half million customers. So I got a chance to see an even bigger cross-section of the American wallet and realizing that at all income levels, in nearly all financial backgrounds, the number one problem to be solved, the job to be done is execution. And so what led me to building a company that's now focused on payment rails and payment infrastructure is really truly the curiosity of saying, why does it take five days to move my own money from my checking to my like high yield savings? You know, it's crazy. Americans leave about $2 trillion just sitting idle in a checking account, not earning anything. And it's, it's just crazy to think about like the last innovation having been the ATM where I could go get my own money at night or on the weekends, but in limited dollars when the bank was closed. And so those are things that have just really sat with me as I've watched the American wallet for you know decades as a financial planner. And I think if I can spend the next decade of my life being curious about how the infrastructure works, I think we can solve some really foundational problems that ultimately have massive economic impact well beyond what it is we'll do in terms of value creation you know, for our board and our investors. And ultimately that we can change the landscape of financial service permanently and put us on a path where everything in financial services is as instant as the rest of our on-demand economy. So it's no small task, certainly. It's, it's gonna be a 10-year journey for sure. We're only a couple of years into that journey, but we've made incredible headway and I'm excited to tell you more about some of the use cases and some of the specifics as we dive into the conversation. So I was wondering before we jump into sort of how are you solving it, can you can you give people a little bit of primer on on what what is the payment infrastructure and what are the challenges and and where those challenges are coming from, and and also sort of like some use cases or the issues which these which the payment infrastructure as it exists today causes people. Yes. So this is where like my, my head kind of explodes because as humans, you know, we're so, we either like accept things the way they are, or we don't accept them. And in so many cases, you know, it's been the end customer that's pushed for change. And in this case, funny enough, the system that we rely on to move money was built about 50 years ago. It's called the automated clearinghouse or ACH. And it's currently running about $72 trillion of payments traffic. So not a small amount of money. And it was built in an era when the problem to be solved was totally different. At that time, the way that the systems were built, the information and the actual flow of money were on two different, let's say, tracks, right, of time. And so still today in 2022, when an ACH happens, which is how you pay your mortgage, it's how you pay your car insurance, your life insurance, it's how you transfer money into Venmo to then transfer it out of Venmo, literally almost everything you do except for shopping with a credit card, even paying back what you owe on the credit card, it's all done via ACH. And so today in 2022, it still takes a minimum of three days for the information or the data about the availability of funds to come into the financial institution. So the transaction happens. And then three days later, the data arrives that says that this, that there was enough money available for settlement and then the transaction settles. And if you do that, at night or on the weekends, you add anywhere between two and three extra days because the system runs on banking hours. It's nine to five Eastern. 
So if you were on the West Coast, you missed the cutoff to do a transaction. It just cascades. And so while this was built and very innovative 50 years ago, it's been largely untouched. And as I said, actually, the most innovative thing in the last 50 years has been access to my own money through an ATM. And other than that, we've accepted that banks are closed at night and on the weekends. We've accepted that it's okay. If I have money in my checking and I want to get it to my brokerage account, let's say I have you know an investment account with Fidelity. And for some reason, and today there's an opportunity, I want to buy a particular equity or stock, mutual fund. I can't get my money in today. I literally can't take advantage of highs and lows in the market. I can't take advantage of pricing opportunities. If my money's in Fidelity and I have an emergency on Sunday, I also can't get it back on Sunday. So it's created this vicious cycle of sort of lack of liquidity. And what that ultimately means is that there's both massive missed opportunities. There's in parallel, a ton of stagnation in executing what would otherwise be very simple financial decisions because people just decide not to do it because it's hard and slow. And then last and very importantly, it leads to trillions of dollars of fees that add up in consumer accounts. And while we are seeing some of the bigger banks either lower their overdraft fees or reduce them entirely, that has been decades of profit for financial services and for banks in particular, that the profit is a derivative of a flaw in the system that the banks have never wanted to correct. So it's a really interesting moment in time because now we are starting to see the pressure mounting from the consumer to say, hey, that's no longer good enough, right? There has to be something better. So as we start to today, tonight, to talk about real-time payments, RTP, and what that, you know, understanding that there was an old system and we have to migrate to a new system and what that looks like, you're talking about massive infrastructure overhauls. Um, and that's where Orm comes in, right? Where one of the kind of most significant ways that you can think about transitioning from a five to seven day settlement experience and slow money movement to instant real time. And that's where the consumer expectation is. One clarification there. Is the problem speed or is it the fact that the, the institution on the other side doesn't have certainty whether these funds will be received to them or, or not, or, or, or both? <laughs> well, it's a little bit both because the certainty is what allows the system to operate with speed. So the information that it's really Stephanie for the transaction, that Stephanie really has $100 in her checking account with Chase that could go to Fidelity, the certainty of all that information is low until the data comes in and the data only is available post-fact. Whereas with credit cards, when I swipe my credit card, the data about if it's me and if I have money available, if I'm over or under my limit, is instantaneous. So that SLA or risk management is real time in credit, but it's not real time on ACH. So for 70 some trillion dollars uh, of money movement, the system doesn't have certainty in it. And so in three days time, data will come in about whether or not that was available funds that could be settled. And then for 60 more days, two more months, a consumer can come back and say, that wasn't me. And the bank has an obligation legally to reverse the entire transaction and likely lose what was otherwise funds that they thought were valid. And so the, the way that fraudsters or bad actors manipulate the system, and ultimately this is less about banks in some cases, and it's about the entire financial system, because while the banks provide the ability to move money, it's fintechs, it's insurance companies, it's e-commerce, it's literally every part of our financial system that operates with uncertainty and that has this rules-based, time-bound, slow system that everybody relies on. And so it's very rife with fraud and it's very open to manipulation because for that additional 60 days, the rules say, if I say it wasn't me, the money reverses and somebody takes a loss on that. So it's a very expensive way um, to think about solving problems around certainty. And I think it can be done better, both with machine learning, which is a big part of what we do, identifying the outcome before it happens, not after, and ultimately with faster rails that do have a finality to them. I think one of the big differences, if you've ever done a wire, let's say, you know, you've moved money to buy a house or something like that, usually a wire is required. In bigger transactions, the reason wires are so preferred and necessary is because that they can't be reversed. They are certain. And you read headlines all the time about mistakes that happen to the tune sometimes of multi-million dollar errors in the big financial sector. But on a day-to-day -day basis, 
despite costing more, let's say 30 to $50 to do a wire for a consumer, which is out of reach for most American households, it comes with certainty. So you either have the like basically free, super cheap, very slow way with no certainty, or you have the faster, very high cost version with wires and nothing in the middle until real-time payments came along. And so as we push on adoption for real-time payments, we're able to see just groundswell of change in the way financial services is interacting with money movement. So Stephanie, you mentioned that the last innovative thing that happened in payments is, was the creation of an ATM where you could get money over the weekend. I want to go back to your early days. You identified a key problem, which are the payment rails, how the money moves. How did you, I'm very curious to understand how you convinced yourself that you could solve this problem because <laughs> I also like to make observations and have big statements, but I haven't yet followed through in terms of um, thinking that I could do it. So how did you get that conviction that you could also do this? Well, conviction for me came slowly. And I'll tell you that, you know, I've, I've been a CFP for decades. I won't say how many because that makes me feel old. But it ultimately boiled down to feeling this sense of unfinished business. So I ultimately left Northwestern Mutual after about three years of running the post-merger integration and making sure that the intellectual property and software that they bought from us was up and running and working really well. And I went on to my next gig, which was to build the digital at-home experience for SoulCycle and ultimately for Equinox. The platform is now called Equinox Plus. So total detour, right, from fintech. Super fun, got to figure out how to build hardware, met some amazing people that network at Orem and just life-changing, awesome, cool experience. But I kept sitting there feeling like I had unfinished business. And as I went back to the founder of LearnVast, Alexa Von Tobel, and I said, hey, I've been, I've been feeling like there's just something missing. I feel like the problem is execution. Can we, can we solve it? It was really just in conversation with her. She had just started Inspired Capital and she was like, I'm going to write your first check. And I was almost like, no, 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 let's not do that. You know, the, that feeling of like, then it becomes real. You said it out loud. Okay, maybe people heard you. But it was really both a number of like, I would say like conversations that happened for me and ultimately the leap of faith for one person that knew me really well to say, I think you should go work on this and I want to be your first investor. And I know that isn't the typical founding fundraising story. That just happens to be my story. But I do think for many of us, we have an idea and we aren't sure we should take the leap. And I think the best thing I've always experienced in my career, not even just about founding Orem, is like the serendipity of saying yes. Because what's wrong with saying yes? What's wrong with trying? Nothing. What's wrong with feeling? Absolutely nothing. Learning, finding the answer to something. So ultimately, I think, you know, a conversation with my husband, a little bit of like, okay, is it now? Is it now in my head? And then the push from a, a dear friend and a longtime business partner who remains a huge part of what we're doing at Orem. And so I think credit to people who knew me well and knew that like, I just, I couldn't put the problem aside. I think most of us ultimately have something we feel that way about. Some of us are more inclined to sit alone with no team and no money in the bank and just write on a blank piece of paper than others. And I think that there is something about the DNA of a founder that is a little wild, wild west. And I like that blank piece of paper. So here we are. Nice. I would say you're a human dynamo. I heard a few of your uh, podcasts before. I'm just such a huge fan of yours. So I'm actually pretty excited that we're speaking to you. <laughs> um, I think you're a go-getter, resilient, optimistic, passionate founder. Love it. Thank you. Um, I want to move over to your products. We have about nine minutes to the moderate session. So I want to go over to your products. You're focused on building an embeddable platform for smart real-time money movement with your core product, Momentum. Could you tell us more about Momentum? Yes, absolutely. So this is like such a fun thing to work on because ultimately we believe that giving people the confidence to instantly access their money can bring financial opportunity to all, not just a few, right? And so my roots are not as like a you know developer building APIs. My roots are always thinking about that bigger picture. And our long-term vision is to power a better financial system where everyone has the freedom to build to their potential. So we see it as our job to bridge the financial gap. And in doing so, we can build a better, more ambitious future for America and hopefully for the world. So we're pretty focused on use cases with real-time payments where access to real-time liquidity bridges that financial gap. And it's so interesting when you kind of think about the statistics, 46% of consumers would choose to receive disbursements instantly if possible, my insurance claim, 
all the way down to your payroll. And so it shows that a growing number of people need, require, want, would pay for all things real time. And I think that the benefit for both businesses and consumers is massive because we're going to ask and answer the question, what would you build if everything moved instantly? What if we weren't solving for fraud? What if we weren't solving for time? What if we were solving for something totally different in the financial services sector? By putting real-time payments out there, that's what we unlock our partners to be able to do. And we really say like, our job is to help you find the freedom to build better, better products, better services, better customer experience, better outcomes. So here's a few examples. Um, you know, in the gig economy, it's so fascinating to see, you know, and, and I think no surprise, both the adoption of the gig economy pre and post COVID. And I think specifically, if you look at, you know, emerging platforms like Uber, Instacart, DoorDash, they had this super urgent need to pay their gig workers quickly after they completed shifts. And they didn't actually have the tools for it. So they had to create their own workarounds for instant payout, like pushing that earnings directly to a branded debit card that has fees. But with the advent of real-time payment rails and with infrastructure and APIs like Orem's, 75% plus of the deposit accounts out there in the US already cover or can receive a real-time payment. So Orem is in a really great place to provide a super simple alternative that's very easily embeddable to platforms that already exist. And faster equals peace of mind. It's essential for our gig economy and for instant payouts to become the norm. And 95% of workers are saying, hey, if I get paid instantly, I have way greater financial peace of mind. And for me, that's something I think about every day. So that's one really interesting area. Another area that we love is brokerage. And here's the funny thing about brokerage, right? It's an investment. Your money's going to go into the market. It's going to go up and down. We hope it goes up more than it goes down. And it's a long-term play. It's where wealth gets created in the American wallet. And we've done such a great job of tearing down the barriers to entry, like fractional share purchasing and all these incredible platforms from public to Robinhood and everything in between, including, you know, the incumbents like Fidelity really doing transformational things. But the main thing that always drives human behavior is trust. And when people trust that they can get their money out at night on the weekends and on a holiday in under 15 seconds, their likelihood to put money in is goes up by like 10x. And so we find ourselves doing a ton of work in the brokerage space because, and ultimately in crypto, it's a very similar thesis because right now crypto being more of an investment than a payment tool, the idea that I can get it back quickly is so powerful for consumers. And so it's just finding those reasons, those use cases to say instant in is important, but instant out is just as important. And instant out is actually in many cases more important than anything else you could possibly do. Same thing with insurance. By the very nature of what insurance is, claims themselves, they arise around unexpected incidents. Like I didn't plan to have a car accident or a fire or a flood or unemployment or a healthcare issue. So when I need that money, I need it now. We had some friends in our lives have a massive fire, devastating fire in their home. They live three houses down and they waited weeks for checks and different reimbursements. And meanwhile, they have to spend money to start to repair. So in all of these cases where you're stressfully waiting for an ACH or worse, literally a check that's going to take weeks, we can actually just clear these transactions instantly. So the way we think about it, like I said, is always going to come back to building better outcomes, building something better for that end customer, and very much around trust, financial security, and stability. So one one area I wanted to sort of understand more is... is who are your customers and then sort of, I think you, you mentioned gig economy and, and, and insurance, is that the core market and sort of, how are you, how are you reaching out to them? This is sort of like a B2B sales world. So do you have a sales team? How do you, how are you acquiring customers? How does, what does the sales process look like? Well, for a long time, podcasts like this were the sales channel and still <laughs> actually conversations like this, I think bring awareness to the world that, we exist, we're, you know, obviously a quietly, you know, growing little company with not a lot of marketing resources. So we, we love opportunities like this. So thank you both. We do have a sales team. We have a revenue leader. Our chief revenue officer joined us from Marketa. He was their pre and post IPO. We've got a number of folks from Square, from Stripe, you name it. So we're a big payments team in, internally. And, and I'd say more so than me, the team obviously carries an incredible amount of B2B 
um, platform sales. I think what's different is, you know, this isn't like selling a SaaS product, right? This is payments infrastructure. So while it's easy to turn on, relatively straightforward to integrate to, there's a lot of consultative selling to make sure that our partners are building better, that they do feel the immediate benefit of how our faster rails, our risk intelligence can all come together to produce the outcome that they're looking for. So that's how we how we do it. In terms of who we're working with, I'm going to highlight a customer that we're really uh, super excited about. And this does fall in the gig economy. And I would say, while well, I've highlighted gig economy insurance and brokerage, that is by no means all we do. We cover all sectors and financial service but services, but I would say those are three very sort of hot areas for us right now. And Creatively is a platform that helps creative creatives like designers, freelancers, and videographers, photographers get paired with big brands for essentially product-based and sometimes full-time work. And what we were able to do with Creatively is take their platform that's essentially sort of a jobs marketplace, like a LinkedIn for creatives, and actually create an income opportunity for the creatives. And of all the people out there who have delays in their wages, you know, many of us wait two weeks to get paid. People who work on a 1099 basis often wait 30 to 45 days and beyond because they're paid on net terms with the brand or the company that they're working for. So we were able to bridge that gap on the net 45 and the net 30. We provide some liquidity as, and do some really thoughtful risk underwriting. And we leverage real-time payment rails so when a creative is due to get paid from a big brand that they've been working for, they don't have to wait a month and a half or six weeks. They can get it instantly. And so just to transform the way that this part of the economy operates is so powerful. And working with Creatively has been so fun because we can all put ourselves in the shoes of the people on the other side of the transaction. We know exactly what it feels like and how important it is. And I think when we're working with our partners, as I said, you know, it's very much about being in it with them and being able to consult through the process of what they're building. This enabled creatively, creatively to launch a new product called Creatively Pay that ultimately will create revenue and generate new lines of business for the company. So it's not just the payments piece and it's not just the experience for the end customer, though we obviously care a lot about that. It's also very much figuring out for our partners how they can benefit from, whether it's through growth and more optimized cost of acquisition or through lines of revenue and net new products they can build from the new infrastructure that they're integrating to with us. Stephanie, we are over time for the moderated session, but one last question that I want to ask <laughs> is, we can't have a conversation on payments and not talk about you know, the Federal Reserve and Federal Reserve controls the supply of money in an economy, they influence the payment rails. And I wanted to understand what are your views on central banks issuing digital currencies and the respective impact on the payments infrastructure as a result? That's Ooh. the last question for the moderator session, and then we'll open it up to the okay. audience for their questions. I'll answer quickly because I know we have lots of folks who probably want to ask questions. This is actually a great question and one that I'm really passionate about. We are so fortunate to have a great relationship with, and we've spent a lot of time tracking both what the Fed is thinking about and what um, central banks generally are thinking about in terms of digital currencies in the US, the USDC, and generally what we think is going to happen with the sort of stable coin thesis. And ultimately, we remain agnostic to what is the sort of penultimate answer to best way to move money, whether it's wire, ACH, same day ACH, RTP, what the Fed's creating, which is called FedNow, and or in this case, stable coin or crypto, and probably the 10 other things that are going to get created in our lifetime. Our job is really to think about orchestration of how those payments shake out, right? And so something we didn't talk about is how much orchestration and intelligence is in the platform. Now, that's a little bit of an aside. So coming back to the stablecoin thesis, it's really, really powerful to think about having something that can settle in real, something that can operate a little bit like crypto, but without the instability. I think, as we all know, crypto is wildly unstable, very much like a sort of fast moving stock in the market. And so while it may in some cases be used as a form of payment, it's ultimately pretty risky still and very unregulated. Where a stable coin is pegged to the dollar or internationally pegged to a fiat currency or a local currency. So what it does is it actually opens up to cross-border in a totally different way than has been done previously. And it's something that ultimately, as we think central banks in general continue to kind of pursue, and as we see Paxos and Circle and Coinbase all thinking about stablecoin as well, we believe that there will absolutely be a point at which, and probably relatively soon, that that's one of the seven to 15 different ways of moving money in real time. 
that Orem will support through its infrastructure. So excited about where it's going and for what we think will be a net benefit in terms of the impact on payments infrastructure and for the idea that our machine learning layer can help manage risk around each of these decisions, which is ultimately one of the greatest values we can provide when thinking about things that happen in real time, whether it's with stablecoin or anything else. Thank you. I think we could just have a conversation on CBC on central bank digital currencies uh, for the whole Indeed. Indeed. Um, so I'll open up, <laughs> I'll, op I'll open up to the audience. Um, so there are two ways if you like to come up and ask a question. One is you can raise your hand. There is an icon in the bottom right. It looks like Alice, Alex will be our first one. Welcome back. If you want to introduce yourself and then share your thoughts or ask your. Yes. Hi. Uh, hi, Stephanie. My, my name is Alex. I'm an assistant director of UX uh, managing teams in the money movement space for, for a large bank. And Having worked both in wealth and consumer money movement, I, I think you've got you've jumped into a, a fundamental problem, obviously in finance with rebuilding the rails. And I really like your focus on uh, execution and orchestration, as well as fraud prediction and brokerage has like spaces to kind of dig into. I'm curious, how are you positioning your company in relation to to, to the big incumbents, right? Like, on the one hand, you got the clearinghouses RTP platform, which you know many of us know is owned by a banking basically consortium. And on the other, you've got that emerging FedNow platform, you know, that's, you know, probably will take a while to get developed, but how are you planning to, to deal with them and, and, you know, to, to position yourself within that? Yeah. Well, Alex, first of all, thank you for being brave enough to ask the first question. It's a great question. This is actually such an interesting area because to a certain extent, real-time payments, RTP, which as you said, is owned by the clearinghouse, which is then owned by a consortium of banks is distinct from what is called FedNow being developed by the Fed. They're considered interoperable, meaning they have similar standards, they have the same messaging standard, but you can't send from RTP to FedNow and vice versa, at least not yet. So they are in some ways competitive systems. What we've said to ourselves is our job is to literally be partners with everybody. So, you know, we started our banking relationships with JP Morgan and tier one banks, knowing that they were going to be able to provide, you know, a lot of sort of best in class rigor so that when we're out in market working with banks of any size and or other kinds of financial institutions, including fintechs, everything clicks into place. Our thesis is that the way that people feel about sort of Amazon same day delivery is the way that they're going to feel about money movement. I don't care if it was an ACH or a wire or an RTP or a FedNow transaction. I care how fast it got to me. I care whether there was risk in it. Well, Amazon does that for us today with their instant delivery. You don't know if it was UPS or FedEx or DHL. And while those individually might be all competitors, Amazon sees them all as part of the algorithm of final mile delivery. Just the way that Orem sees every bank partner that we work with, every type of money movement rail, and ultimately RTP and FedNow, not as competitors to us or to each other, but as part of the supply chain of being able to move money instantly. So we're actually very excited to see the FedNow system come online. It is on track for 2023. There are a number of banks that are going to be ready right at launch. And I think, you know, because we are already tracking to have it in our portfolio, it will just be yet another way that we can expand how we offer that instant capability. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Poonam, over to you. Hey, Stephanie, this is Poonam here. I'm also working in the fintech organization as an engineer. So I have an engineering question for you. For you. So oh, boy. <laughs> Hopefully I can answer this one. <laughs> uh, hopefully. So I'm just thinking in the perspective of as a developer, like I, I would like to understand what the tech stack looks like for the real-time payment systems. So you're probably getting over my head just immediately by saying, you know, you want an engineering answer. But I will tell you this. First of all, we have a world-class team. I could not be more proud of and frankly luckier to work with some incredible engineering talent. So that I think is just first and foremost, like as a non-technical founder to all those listening who asked, heard me talk about this sort of brave leap of faith. One of the most brave parts is figuring out who are you going to build it with that can actually build it. And so we've thought from the very beginning about our tech stack as something that needs to be modern and contemporary. So wherever we can be using the most bleeding edge technologies, we absolutely are. But we couple that with a really 
uh, specific framework for information security and data privacy and data security. So we kind of have to walk both ends of the spectrum in terms of being like a very fast moving, bleeding edge and thinking specifically about a lot of infrastructure around machine learning. You know, a lot of our tech stack revolves around how we instantly make our decisions about whether or not there's risk in the transaction, how fast it should go, what rail it should go on, which bank it should process through. So there's an incredible machine learning and data science organization as well. And the way that we think about that tech is to say, you know, build as quickly as possible, build only what's absolutely necessary to get to the next leg of unlocking value for the customer in the ecosystem. Be super mindful of the technical debt you're taking on and try to manage it before it gets out in front of you. Because just as any other company grows, we have to think about those things too. And, you know, we have a policy here or sort of a policy is the wrong word, maybe like culture around the best ideas come from everywhere. We very much value diversity of thought and we only get that from diversity of people. So our engineers of all levels have an opportunity to weigh in on what we're building, how we're going to build it and have a chance to be a a part of the decision making um, alongside the technical leadership. So while I know that's not an incredibly specific answer to your question, our documentation is world-class. We've strived to look like from our very early days, the best in breed. And I would say Stripe is one of those best in breed companies that we look at and say, how can we make sure that our tech stack and ultimately our documentation are things that get engineers excited about the build? Because a business person can decide they want this solution and the engineers are rolling their eyes saying this looks miserable to build. And we knew that was not going to work, even in a very successful B2B sales model. So there's a very big sort of developer aspect and developer community focus at Orem in terms of how we think what I'm going to call the end user from a build perspective. So great question. And as, as, a, as a fellow you know, fintech builder, I'm sure you have encountered your fair share of things that sound like a great idea and hard to, are hard to connect to. And certainly you've seen your fair share of things that are are super simple and streamlined. And, and we've really endeavored to fall in, in, in service of being simple, straightforward, and, and kind of what I'm going to call a fun build for the engineering teams that we're working with. One quick follow-up there, Stephanie, uh, slightly tangential, but one one aspect of inclusion in payments, which people don't realize is sort of, there are all these, all, 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 all companies like yours, which are actually adjudicating payments for other firms. And sometimes because of how machine learning and rule-based system work, people can get into like like a blacklist or, or a decline list. Famous was Check System. I don't know if you heard of that. <laughs> yes, company. I have. Yeah. <laughs> so I was wondering what, how do you, what do you think of that? Are, do you, do you have, do you offer ability for consumer who sort of gets wrongly blacklisted to come out or how do you is is your system a black box uh, for your customers well so it's such a fascinating area right now as machine learning does become a lot more popular in the market for solving a variety of problems certainly not just the ones that orem is working on you see machine learning going into all different kinds of places in financial service underwriting obviously being a big area and so there are things that we think about every day in terms of how to eradicate bias from machine-led decision-making. And one of the ways that we do that is by abstracting where we do and do not use personally identifying information. And the more that you're using de-identified consortium-based aggregated data, which is one of the big things that we do, leveraging all of our partners and banks who feed data in on real-time event-based APIs, that puts us in a position to certainly not be perfect, but be ahead of the curve in terms of managing for the bias that sometimes comes with using personal information as kind of the key indicator. I will say that there's also a number of requirements that we have to think very carefully about any time that Orem is making a decision in a transaction and being very cognizant of the Fair Credit Reporting Act requirements and adverse actions that can occur. Blacklist specifically is also a pretty hot topic, and we certainly are not a check consortium, so we, we don't have to worry about that arena, but because there are blacklists of many kinds, we first and foremost need to live up to the obligation of the banking system and the standard under the Banking Services Act. And so our BSA protocols and anti-money laundering protocols are ones that are compliant and really contemporary with the rest of the financial services sector. So it's a balance for us of always thinking about managing for bias and managing for decision-making. A good number of our customers 
are fintechs who serve the underbanked or the credit invisible, people who didn't have a KYC profile or who didn't have um, a banking background or banking history previously. So our goal is really to be able to marry the best of machine learning with solving that incredibly hard problem. And one of the secrets to doing that is using de-identified consortium data to find signal without necessarily going down to the PII level and, and, and blacklisting at an individual customer level. So I'd say it's a balance, right? Especially because as a player in the traditional money movement system, we are required to meet all of the regulatory requirements as anyone else, including banks, has to do to move money. And so in that regard, we will have legal reasons why we may have to block and tackle certain things, but we generally try to stay as open-minded as possible and build it really skews away from that bias that you see in the system. Okay, thank you. That, that, that was a really good follow-up, so thank you for asking. Tammy, over to you, welcome back. We do have only 15 minutes and we have about four people, so I would just start asking folks, so Tammy, not just you, but everyone else, if you could just limit to one question, that would help us. Sure. Thank you, Ambika and Tammy Fleming. I'm in uh, financial services and actually also have a background in the brokerage side. So this has been a fantastic discussion, Stephanie. It's a lot of stuff going through my mind. I want to say your branding question, how you came up with your name was very, very creative very clever. So Thanks. kudos on that. And of course, I have to throw out woman funded uh, fintech high five to you. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, my, my quick question is the, the 15 clients that you have, have they fully rolled out your products from an enterprise perspective? Because I was looking at some of your use case results on your testing where, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, 85% of deposit transfers have been done in a day. The banks have had 40% reduction in instances of NSF. It, so is that across their entire books? It, so your products, you are finding questionable deposits that are that they do need to have a diff, additional due diligence to clear. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I can. And, you know, the numbers that you're looking at and the sort of trajectory of success of the products we're building is really predicated on the exact kind of outcomes that you're talking about. This isn't worth building among us friends here if it doesn't work, and if it doesn't work really well. And so we'll, we'll, we'll probably never be able to have 100% perfection in risk management or um, ACH return identification we will get very, very close. And so the machine learning layers that kind of run inside our systems are very sophisticated, thus helping us take on these massive systemic problems and have sweeping change and impact over the course of the rollout. We have partners in all different phases of rollout, and you're probably drawing some of these numbers off of previous press announcements. We're pretty closed about total customer count and revenue and all that because we're a private company. Um, but I can say as we continue to grow, we find that, you know, enterprise is working with us. And this this really spans from, you know, early stage fintechs to growth fintechs all the way through some very notable incumbent FIs. They all approach their builds a little bit differently. But I would say every in product management these days thinks about a phased rollout. So there's always going to be some aspect of taking our product and turning it on over a period of time, could be a few days, could be a few weeks. Ultimately, yes, we don't have any of our partners who are using our products only for customer group A or B, right? They're using it cross-platform. And so the results that you're talking about really speak to the efficacy of what can happen when you modernize your infrastructure. And while it's still very early days for us and the sales and revenue team it probably doesn't have enough hours in the day to cover all the ground and the you know number of customers that have built up wanting to chat with us. I think the early traction that we've seen and the results we're seeing just push us to frankly make the results bigger, better, and and more consequential even than they have been in the very beginning. So I would say that it's a very motivating aspect of saying, how can we do better? How can we get 1% better results in every tweak or iteration we make to the product and in every customer build that we help collaborate on because each and every customer that integrates with us definitely helps identify more and more best practices and utilization or use cases that can be applicable to um, the tech we're building. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Tammy. And over to you, Heather, if you want to introduce yourself and share your thoughts. Yeah, that's great. I am going to give 
I have three crazy kids running around right now. So I found <laughs> a, a quiet moment. And uh, instead of sending this to the back channel, I thought I'd uh, get on here. But um, kind of leading off of Tammy's question, I'm curious about your predictive risk intelligence you mentioned. Are you leveraging aggregators and IEV technologies in your machine learning? Or what are you guys doing differently to optimize your risks for you know things like disputes and returns? One of my favorite questions, and first of all, good luck with three little ones. I stopped at two and sometimes wish I had three. So um, I'm always amazed by the households and the moms in particular that pull that off. You know, the way that we thought about data actually is, is I think, a little bit different than many companies. And we, we always have had the, the thesis that everybody shares a common enemy, which is bad actors manipulate the system. And so if we can share our data on a de-identified basis across our consortium, everybody wins, right? And this isn't really any different than maybe what early warning systems does, except that it's focused a lot more heavily on fintech because so much of our customer base is in a segment that is de novo, building net new products, like I said, for customers who didn't exist. Tens of millions of Americans today now bank who five years ago didn't because digital bank platforms have been created. So we do have, I think, a really unique perspective that, you know, whether it's partnerships with aggregators or whether it's consortium data, at the end of the day, all of us contributing real-time data into a data network like the one that Orem's created is the most powerful way to stay current and frankly get ahead of the bad actors. And to be able to say in one part of our system, we're detecting through machine learning anomalous behavior that is probably going to ripple and go to other companies in the same sector. How can we be a part of stopping that from happening and being able to create signal for everybody on our platform and really build up the muscle to identify patterns that happen somewhere else and, and make sure that we're aware of them in every part of our system, as opposed to saying there's individualized you know, analysis done at each customer that's only gated to them. So it does really come back to consortium-led data thinking. And for us, that's been a huge unlock because the faster we can all agree to share data to get rid of bad actors, the faster we can move on from a problem that's been plaguing the system, frankly, for five to six decades, and, and we should have been ahead of it already. So it is one of the most powerful ways to use machine learning today. And one of the things that I think when I wake up and think about what Orem is going to change in the world, it's one of the most influential aspects of how machine learning can be applied. Awesome. I love it. Thanks, Heather. And now over to Monisha, who's actually the co-host of the show. <laughs> Monisha, how is the violin recital? <laughs> uh, very well. There were no uh, issues. Uh, and sorry to have missed out, Stephanie. I'm usually on the other half of the I know, minutes, it's okay. I missed you, but next time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. Thank you. Um, I'm super excited about the show. We'll definitely be listening to the replay. I'm uh, curious about the uh, funding side. I did read that you, in the I think the funding round in June, allocated over 10% to underrepresented founders. Very curious about how you managed to stay true to that purpose. And also, can you afford to be selective, right? I'm sure that's not an easy decision. So would love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, first of all, I'm so glad you asked this question. A lot of people want to know, like, how did we raise money? And well, I'm always happy to talk about that too. I think there's a really powerful piece here, which is saying, you know, I'm going to take a big swing and build a company. When I build that company, I want it to reflect my values and, and I value diversity. And I want to be part of fixing broken rungs. I want to be part of fixing endemic problems and you know, closing wage gaps, both for women specifically, and also just generally for underrepresented talent that could be working in tech. So when I first started, and, and you'll hear this when you hear the replay, um, thinking about the funding journey, it was with a woman. And so the first check into Orem is from Inspired Capital, Alexa Montobel and Penny Pritzker, who was the former Secretary of Commerce um, under the Obama administration. So two very powerful women were the first checks in and we said, we're gonna to commit to always having a board that is 50% female. So that was really important. We're gonna to commit to really looking for diversity at all levels. And if we build a cap table that's diverse, we'll build a boardroom that's diverse. If we build a boardroom that's diverse, we'll be, build a leadership team that's diverse. If we build a leadership team that's diverse, the company will build itself to be diverse. And those things have come true. I would say that it is 
on every founder, male or female, diverse or not, underrepresented or not, to really think about being a door opener. We create jobs in America. That's part of the beauty of technology is being able, and, and at Orem doing it remotely, being able to hire hundreds of people and, and put them in positions of success. And so I made it my personal mission and I will continue to do this to make sure that that closing the wealth gap isn't just paying tier one salaries at Orem. It's also about finding underrepresented investors. And there's a fund in particular that I uh, often talk about, NA3 Futures Fund, which is primarily limited partners or LPs who are women of a Southeast Asian descent. And this has been so powerful because it's changed my network entirely by having these investors in the room, right? And so you just find yourself really realizing that if you slow down and you put the parameters out there, everybody else around the cap table said, we'd love to support you in this. We'll step back here. We'll make a little flex here. We want to get more diverse investors. And so closing that wealth gap, it's not just about the salaries we pay or the benefits we offer. It's so much of it comes back to the investment opportunity for people who otherwise don't get a chance to get into sectors like, you know, private market, venture investing. And it's paid such dividends in the relationships I've built, the friendships I've made, the referrals to the company, the growth we've had, and frankly, the network that has 10xed the opportunity for us. So I'd do it again in a heartbeat, and we're going to do it obviously for every round. And I hope that for those listening, you find your path to being able to, to open these same kind of doors in the way you know how and in the way that you're passionate about. Thanks for sharing that, Stephanie. Definitely inspiring and a note for all of us. Like I said, Stephanie, earlier, you're a human dynamo. So we're just all having inspirational moments here <laughs> listening to you. So we have four minutes. So Adrian, over to you for your question. And then Keithy, you'll get the last question. Thank you. Wow. I have like a million questions that I want to ask you, but I'm just going to stick with this one here. It seems like you're on an amazing journey right now. And it seems like you're getting the opportunity to talk to a major financial institution. And I was just wondering, what is your experience with telling these financial institutions that you're going to facilitate the increase of the velocity of money? Do they follow through with that? Like, are they excited by that? Because I feel that there's some sort of pushback that I, I, I suspect you, you, you're getting because, you know, they, in my head, they want to keep the system a little slow so they can play with the float of money and make a little interest on that. So I was just wondering kind of what your experience was. Adrian, I love the question. There was a day, um, and it wasn't that long ago, where it was very powerful to trade money in the overnight market and the federal funds rate was attractive enough and may become attractive enough again over time to make that a really valuable part of the system. But if we step way back, and I know a lot of you have already come up and said, hey, I work in brokerage. You know, the wealth management industry went through a change like this in the last two decades where it was okay to just charge absurd commissions to, <laughs> to trades. And the whole industry was predicated on a revenue model that was, I'm not going to say predatory, but favorable to the institution, not the customer. And through a number of channels, some legislative, some simply driven by the consumer, and many driven by fintech saying, like, that's no longer acceptable. Trading's gone to zero. There are no commissions. Like, that whole world ceased to exist. And yet wealth management didn't cease to exist. In fact, it's thriving. So I think the same is true as we work with banks and other big FIs, which is that they recognize that while this has been a source of you know, revenue in previous iterations of businesses they've built, they, like everyone else, also understand the necessity of modernization. And frankly, the biggest banks are the fastest to realize that if they just move with the trend, they get to the, have the first mover advantage. So I would say we, we never encounter resistance in this category. Where we probably encounter the most resistance is simply the like change of, of operations that has to happen for a bank or an FI to really wrap their head around what it's going to be like to move money in real time. And, and that's pretty overcomable. But I think, you know, in, like I said, in great fortune to the moment in time we're in, the instant everything economy we live in has sort of paved the way for saying this is a must. And I would say because of the wealth management industry's magnitudes of change, it's been understood in financial services that there's going to be a need to make sweeping changes. And you're seeing that also not just with the speed, but with this very recent shift by Capital One, um, Bank of America and others to either entirely eliminate or reduce down substantially what they're charging on overdraft, which has historically been billions and billions and billions of dollars of profit. 
So it's a sea change for sure. And we're thrilled to be part of pushing forward on something that's got such a meaningful impact. That's very exciting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Keep you. It up. Thank you. Okay, Kirti, you get to have the last question. So go for it. Hi, Stephanie. So the payment industry is broken. And thank you for building products to fix that. Uh, great product. I have one question. So worked in uh, financial risk management, modeling and all that. And one of the things like during the compliance process, although you did touch on it earlier, but one of the things in the compliance process or the reason why the payments is so slow is the AML and the compliance part. And so I was curious to know for cases like if you have to file a suspicious activity report and you actually have to block a transaction or report a transaction for uh, 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 for inquiry and all that, then you can't have the money flow through. So what are the processes your product does in case there is an actual bad actor in the system and you have to, for regulatory purposes, block the transaction? In the banking perspective, it is since it takes time, a couple of days, then those couple of days are used to do the due diligence. But if it's instant, like your system, then how do you deal with this problem? So this is a problem that's actually been solved really outside of the confines of Orem, specifically because the protocols for real-time payments, RTP, the network, and FedNow were established to recognize the, the necessity of operating inside the existing financial ecosystem. So while we are a fintech building a bridge to access these new rails and really build the orchestration to leverage them and the intelligence around them, we, like our bank partners, have to file suspicious activities reports. So SARS reporting is a key part of what we do. We are compliant with all aspects of BSA AML, screening, OFAC screening, sanction screening, you, you name it. And so there are times in which a transaction can't go forward. There are bad actors that need to at least uh, have some degree of investigation. And so technologically, the way we've managed for that is both to leverage what was predetermined by the networks um, like RTP and FedNow and to use just very basic, you know, technology frameworks like webhooks to keep a consistent line of technical communication between our platform and our customers so that they know essentially, to use the words of our head of payments who who's a pilot, air traffic control, right? Is a transaction pending? Is it stuck? Is it not going to go forward? What's the status? So our settlement and reconciliation system and our real-time ledger are a big part of our ability to be able to communicate via webhooks and also through our support um, and account management teams back to customers what's actually happening. And if we do encounter a situation where a SAR has to be filed, what's going to happen to that transaction? So we've, like the rest of the banking system, we comply with all the regulations. We just have an opportunity to do that in a way that's more technologically forward in terms of how that um, potential delay of the transaction may be communicated back to the platform and how in turn the platform or, or customer of ours may communicate it to their end user. Thank you mm -hmm. so much. My pleasure. Great. Well, that was it, Stephanie. That's a wrap. <laughs> Any parting words for you? I think I can safely say on behalf of everyone here that we're just so impressed by what you're doing and we wish you lots of luck. I'm personally calling you a human dynamo and I look up to you. So I hope you're very, very successful in your Well, endeavor. thank you guys. I feel so lucky to be here and to be the voice of Orem. It's 75 awesome people that show up every day and make the dynamo come to life. It's really not me, it's them. And I'm so thankful for the chance to get to tell a bit of our story. It was a great conversation and really fantastic audience questions. Thanks a lot, Stephanie. I, I, I wanted to ask more uh, roadmap, but next time. Next time. There's always a next time. Well, actually, that should be the last one. Um, Stephanie, how do we get in touch with you if anybody in the audience has any questions or if you're hiring any, any plugs? Well, we're there? always hiring. So, and frankly, pretty much everyone who asked a question struck me as someone that should probably be working here. So don't be shy. Even if our website doesn't have a specific role that you think you're interested in, just hit us up at hello at orum.io or find us at orum.io and you can connect with us directly through the website. We'd love to hear your ideas on what we should build. We'd love to talk to you if you're a customer that thinks you should be working with us and hopefully that's many of you and we'd love to hire engineers, machine learning engineers, data scientists, UX folks, product folks, um, and everything in between. So definitely hit us up for a conversation if that's what you're looking for in your next chapter. 
Awesome. And Vabhav, you also have a show on Clubhouse. So could you also tell us about that? Yeah, we, we do one on, on at 11 a.m. Eastern every Friday. Actually, we moved from Clubhouse to Twitter Spaces last week. So, and, and this, this week we are, we're talking to Chris from a company called Floor NFT, which is creating a wallet to manage your NFTs and, 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 and value them. So we're sort of on a Web3 DeFi kick these days. Well, those are juicy <laughs> topics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you. Actually, Vabhav, you're also in the Eastern time zone. So thank you. It's nine o'clock your time. So really appreciate you staying us with us quite late. My pleasure, you guys. Thanks for a great combo. Thanks, Thanks guys. Yep. Thank you. Have a good Thanks, evening, everybody. everyone. Stay safe.